Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Nice idea. Anyway, thank you, Jim. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. This week is another special, because I've been delving into my archives and came across this interview that I did with the legendary Ian Anderson of Jethro's Hall. This was recorded all, um, yes, this is an interview I did, I think it was the spring of 2017, when he was getting ready for a new album that he'd released. I will find out which one that is, and was rehearsing with the band. This is the interview um, that you're going to have very soon, um, where I'd asked him where he was as you do sometimes when you phone someone, and also, yes, what he was up to. But before that, I think we'll have a track just to get you into the mood of Jethro Tull, and this is going to be my favourite, and probably yours. That's all I've got to say. This is A New Day, A Yesterday.
Absolutely stunning. That is Jethro Tull with a track titled A New Day Yesterday. Hello, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. Normally, um, it's an indie show, really, but um, I've been delving into some of the archives that I have and interviews that I've done with people outside that uh, magical period of music during the 80s. And this is uh, an interview I did with Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. It was the springtime of 2017 when he and they had just released an album called The String Quartets. I think it was just coming out. Um, this is the interview, and this is... Uh, I'd been talking about life, love, poetry, and then uh, a bit about uh, where he was and what was happening. And this was Ian's repl- reply. Ian, take it away. Well, I'm uh, about to start um, work with the band this week in uh, rehearsing and then going on to record uh, the first few songs for a new album scheduled for 2018. So I just came back from Lithuania a couple of days ago. And um, so I'm now um, uh, back in uh, the uh, realms of you know, preparing the, the next the next bit of work. Fantastic, because you've just brought out an album, haven't you? Sort of a, a special one, which has got, um, yes, a bit of a classical quality to it. The well, the String Quartet album officially is released on the 24th of March, as I understand it, and uh, was recorded in the crypt of Worcester Cathedral and uh, at another historic church in the southwest of England over a period of three days in September of last year with the Carducci Quartet, a great bunch of very energetic and technically um, very polished musicians, and um, was the result of a few months of working on the project, arranging, writing, preparing, um, most of that being done not by me, but by John O'Hara, our keyboard player, who is a classically trained um, musician, and um, and I'm not. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's the music of Jethro Tull, repertoire um, yes. of Jethro Tull, apart from one short little bit of Bach, um, but uh, the rest of it is um, is. It, it, I suppose what it's about is is trying to demonstrate that music, which consists really of these three elements of melody, harmony, and rhythm, yeah. that's what music is. That's the, the prime molecular structure of what we call music. And the idea that within a certain genre, the way it's presented stylistically, that a good tune should be able to cross over into another genre and, and find new life, perhaps... 
in an area of stylization which is far from its origins in, in terms of people's awareness. So to take a piece of classical music and turn it into something a bit more jazzy has been yeah. done not just by me but by many people over the years. Taking something that's perhaps a piece of folk music and turning it into a pop song has been done many times over the years. And taking things that are rock music and presenting them in uh, perhaps a, a more classical suit of clothes is something that may be possible depending on the the nature of the music itself but probably probably easier for some of my music than others because um i suppose my my way of writing music is a little bit more evolved than 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 uh, most typical rock music so it's um maybe easier for me to 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 cross genres in that way. Yes, because obviously going back and reworking your um, early numbers must have been quite an interesting experience. So I remember a few years ago when Joni Mitchell did one, she really reinterpreted her early stuff much differently and it had a much more melancholic quality to it. So how was it for you when you went back to do these numbers that were probably 30 or 40 years old? Well, the, the, the reality is that a lot of these songs continue to be played on stage today and many of them over the years have gone through a metamorphosis of their own, you know, in different, uh, we've changed the arrangements, changed the, the way that we present it, maybe changed the order of events within the, the piece of music. So they've all, you know, tended to have been tried out in slightly different ways, albeit broadly within a rock music genre, but also for... I suppose 15, maybe it's coming up for 20 years now, I've done concerts with orchestras where classic Jethro Tull repertoire has been done with the band integrated very much into a symphony orchestra. So that's something I'm I'm pretty familiar with over the years, and we have those arrangements for full orchestra, but uh, the idea of working just with a string quartet and no drums and bass and electric guitars, just really focusing on the string quartet with a few judicious um, intrusions from yeah. me uh, is something that I hadn't done before and that's why this is a slightly different kind of album I'm definitely not for every Jethro Tull fan who likes it hot and heavy <laughs> they might find this a little bit too relaxed and esoteric but uh, I suspect that a lot of Jethro Tull fans will really enjoy this as a way of hearing the music recognizing the musical themes but hearing them in a very different context and that in itself is uh, both um amusing, edifying, and ultimately, I hope, enjoyable in its own right. Yes, because obviously, going back, you know, the band now is sort of started in 67, which is an amazing sort of feat, isn't it? 50 years, if I've done my maths right. Uh, well, the band, the band, the musicians got together uh, in essentially November, December of, of uh, 1967, but Jethro Tull began uh, at the end of January, when we we became known as Jethro Tull, that's really the, the origins of the band. So I'm I don't consider um, the 50th anniversary as being valid until January of of 2018. Yes, that's for me. The if you if you're into anniversaries and birthdays, then that that's it. That's the day. But there are those who can't wait to open the Christmas present at the bottom of the tree and will find any possible excuse to do so, including those who decided that in fact 1960 or rather 2017 would be the 50th anniversary of Jethro Tull. And um, back last summer, I had somebody who was wanting to advance that to 2016 on some absurd pretext that they could. Uh, Yes. Pretend that 
was the 50th anniversary, and um, but it it um, it isn't. It's it's uh, it's January 2018. Anything else is fake news. It's fake news. We don't want that because obviously that 67. Obviously, you weren't formed there, but you were sort of almost. That was the summer of love, and obviously this huge explosion of the counterculture and the hippie, um, you know, sort of movement. Did you sort of was that affecting you as a young person and the sort of music that you were listening to and wanting to play? I'm afraid I was always far too cynical and unmoved by the um, by the hippie ideals because they were ideals. They were not really, uh, I think, in most cases, something that was either permanent nor workable in a pragmatic sense. But it was a it was a an exploration really of of the freedoms of youth to to look for a counterculture that didn't owe anything to the parents' generation. And I think what we really must hold dear is that from really from the mid 60s to the mid 70s we we are fortunate to have lived in that decade that is so incredibly important because it represented the birth of so much change and the recognition of so many uh freedoms that were long overdue that the real true um representation of of gender equality the beginnings of an awareness that we should accept uh the the human rights of people of different sexual persuasion, uh, the, the 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 emancipation finally of of black Americans and other minorities elsewhere in the world. This was a ultimately a time of enormous change. It also um, conspired to oddly be the time of the Vietnam War. Um, man's exploration of the moon um there are a whole bunch of things that happened in this in this magical period of time that uh, i guess those of those of us like me who were fortunate enough to live through that as young professionals in what we were doing it, it's a a very special time to have been growing up as a teenager and as a as a young man so uh, i think that's all very important but it it didn't really impact a lot on me in a musical sense I, I i had a rather cynical view about it and you know john lennon's song imagine for example whilst i understand how dear that is to many people i i just found it a bit clammy and a bit silly you know, a, bit, <laughs> a bit sort of you know yes a, a bit a bit wet not not quite as wet as paul mccartney would have it would have been worse if he'd done it but um <laughs> it just seemed to me um you know, we can hold those sort of naive and fond hopes in our heart, but the minute you start trying to make them public, you do come across as a bit of a tosspot, you know, and I, I think, um, unfortunately, that's how I view it. I'm very cynical about that sort of stuff, and the the, the sexual and um, other apparent freedoms, mainly connected with the use of drugs, um, that, for me, was never going to be a part of my life. I, I really didn't. It didn't sit easily with me, the kind of free love and and drug taking side of it. I just found that you know that 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 just brought out the Daily Mail in me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it made me actually sort of rather a bit a bit a bit squadron leader sort of fusspot grumbling and tut tutting in the background. I actually found it really rather unpleasant and distasteful, especially when people I knew made such idiots of themselves went under the influence of drugs or drink or, you know, got themselves into the into that dangerous place uh, sexually through the, the 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 purely sort of taking advantage of the moment 
physical relationship without it having any emotional responsibility that that never felt right to me i i didn't um i i, I didn't i didn't think that was a a good way to go no, no uh, at all so it's it, uh it it's it, you know i just wasn't i never felt part of the hippie thing i actually on balance you know found them rather which is quite strange annoying. because because your fan base is is you know you could especially in the in the early days you could spot a Jethro Tull fan from a long way away couldn't you? Well, except that I don't think they were ever hippies. You know, our, our fans tended to be really rather um, reflective of society as a whole in whatever country it was. I, you know, they they would be not quite the black t-shirted heavy metal lot, but they would there would be an element of that. There'd be a lot of School teachers, policemen, um, commercial jet pilots. I mean, a whole variety of, of people would be in the audience and, and to this day still are. And I think that's one of the great strengths and, in a way, one of the sort of joys of of, of, uh, of having been behind the the helm of Jethro Tull over the years is, is the fact that we don't have this stereotype, fragmented um, element uh, which is our audience. It, it's it's a broad brush reflection of society as a whole, and I, I think that certainly there might have been a few hippies who were on the fringe of it, but I don't think I don't think you would have found Jethro Tull's fans to be hippies. I'll, I'll clarify that perhaps in a way that wouldn't mean a lot to you, but maybe it does. Um, when we first went to America, we played at Fillmore East, a converted cinema in uh, in Manhattan, in New York. And we also played in Fillmore West in a converted ballroom in uh, San Francisco. And playing in New York, you played a bunch of folks who, you know, come there from work. They were the, a, a mixture of people, much as you might find if you were playing in, uh, you know, in, uh, I don't know, some similar place in London or Berlin or Paris or wherever you might have been. But when you went to play in the Fillmore West in 1969, it was a kind of a hippie experience of people lying on the floor in various states of disrepair and mm. uh, and consciousness while you got on stage and played to a, a relatively disinterested and, and uh, really rather disheveled crowd of, of, um, of bell-bottom jeans and psychedelic, you know, tie-dye t-shirts and whatever. It was the epitome of the the whole hippie thing. And mm-hmm. it was it was it was absolutely awful, you know, it was just a completely really disappointing experience. I, I think I seem to remember playing the film more West like maybe on an occasion when Fairport Convention were also on. But certainly when um there was a band uh, called um um Creedence Clearwater, I think right. they they played there as a headliner and we were supporting and and even they being a straight-ahead kind of real rock band, rabble-rousing, well, pop rock band, you know, with very catchy tunes and screaming vocals and whatever, even they failed to rouse the uh, the um, the dead. The comatosed. Yeah. Yes. So, look, because with most bands, I've, I've sort of realised it's a sort of a five- to six-year narrative. They get the sort of band together, they do a single, the album, the tour, then the tricky second album, then they all hate each other. And that's normally what I've seen is like five to six years. But Jethro Tull, you've managed to sort of keep steering this incredible ship 
through lots of waters and lots of changes because you did, you know, there was, a, you did also get slightly club, uh, lumped in with the hip pro progressive rock band as well, pro movement as well. So you must have loved that one. Um, so, you know, how did you manage to keep it going and how did you keep your sanity? Well, I suppose David Bowie is known for someone who is often referred to in a sort of chameleon-like capacity of reinventing himself and becoming, taking on a new rather theatrical persona from album to album and tour to tour. And you know, in a way, maybe that's that sort of sums up Jethro Tull, the band. We moved on, usually with different musicians into different uh, musical stylings and, and with uh, music that evolved because I was the guy writing it and I responded to the musicians as individuals, as as creative forces in their own right and, and so every album tended to be a bit different from the one before and um you know sometimes they would follow on like heavy horses followed on from songs from the woods so there's a kind of similarity between two consecutive albums there but um you know there are also albums that were sharp divisions from what went before like thick as a brick was a huge step away from uh the album aqualung yes and uh, war child was a huge step away from the previous album a passion play so yeah, you know, part of it is just moving on and doing something a little different. But um, the fact that there are 32 members of Jethro Tull over the years, all of those people have helped during their stay with with the lineup of the band, have, have, have helped define what the music was at that time they were part of it. And to them, I, I owe uh, that, that debt of of gratitude that they they were there at that time to do what they did because many of them of course you know were the right people for that particular time but if they were in the band today they they might not fit in at all yes because you know you mentioned david bowie but that was the quite interesting thing with um a bit of my because i'm a bit obsessed with david bowie there was that moment that he appears on a steel ice band single doesn't he which is an album um now we're at six that you produced well, I, I produced a couple of tracks on it. The rest of it I just mixed and mastered. I wasn't... Um, uh, they, they brought me into the project fairly late on because they were trying to self-produce the album and they were, you know, in, they were disagreeing with each other about so many things and didn't have the technical expertise really to see it through. So I got drafted in uh, to record a couple of final tracks and, uh, and they asked me if I could... Um, they, they had a hankering to put some saxophone on a song that was a actually really didn't belong on the album in my opinion at all but they insisted <laughs> on doing it called uh, was it to, to know, know him is to love him or yes. something and it was some you know american cheesy kind of pop rock rock and roll kind of era thing and they wanted a saxophone solo and they had it in their head that david bowie played saxophone which which he occasionally did and asked me if i could get him to play saxophone i said well i don't know david bowie i don't you know never met him and wouldn't know where to begin, but I made a few inquiries and managed to get in touch with David Bowie or his representatives who said, yes, he'd come and play saxophone on it. And I sent him, a, I suppose, a cassette tape of it, um, the backing track, and and he arrived on the, on the appointed day at the appointed hour, absolutely on time with a, an entourage of about 10 or 12 people that he insisted on bringing into the control room, much to my annoyance. But uh, he needed an audience, I think, and supporters around him in a strange environment. But he, he went out and did one run-through, and uh, he'd, he'd got it all prepared. He knew what he was aiming for, and apart from you know, a couple of little slips, I could see that he was well-prepared. And I said, David, let's just go for a take. 
And he nailed it in that take, and, and everybody applauded and said, great. And, um, and I said, okay, Dave, just one thing. Just want you to go back out there again and walk through the door and, and say, as you did, uh, well, was that all right? And I'll say, yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much, David. It's, uh, you know, that was just perfect. You nailed it in one. And, uh, and then you say, okay, that's great. See you and walk out the door. And we hear the sound of you walking away in the distance. And I really like the idea we captured that moment for what it was, that he just walked in off the street, nailed it in one take, and walked out again. And I wanted that to be part of the feel of the... Um, of the way that it came across, and, uh, and and of course he, being a theatrical performer, immediately you know played the part, and we uh, and we said goodbye. I didn't see him again for many years until the time in the nineties when he was uh, uh, doing the Tin Machine project, right. and yes. um, um, and I met him in a TV studio and reminded him of the fact that um, you know what a great example that he set by coming to perform and play for another artist and be so professionally well prepared and, and never to ask for any any fee or royalty for doing it just a musical gift and I said that's I took that to heart and, and through all these years whenever I play on anybody else's record I, I never ask for money I always you know it's a freebie yeah. and uh, and he pretended to to be astonished and amazed that he hadn't put in <laughs> uh, an invoice and said I suppose it's too late now <laughs> joking showing me his very shiny new teeth which he just got yes he was pleased with it so when you when you look back at um, the Jethro Tull sort of um, back catalogue which which particular album do you sort of look at and think god that was just magic or is there more than one well none of them are really magic they, you know I can see all the flaws and the you know the little elements that, that perhaps I would like to think I would do again and do better but you know, there are a number of albums that perhaps stand out for different reasons. Stand Up being the first because it was the the second Jethro Tull album, but the first of all original material, which which I wrote and and um, and featured the then replacement new guitarist Martin Barr. Uh, so that one is a special one because that's the first more creative effort in my life as a musician and as a as a budding record producer as well. So. It, it was a an album of coming of age. Uh, the Aqualung album, obviously, for reasons of commercial success over the years, as well as the fact that it was more of a singer-songwriter album, where for the first time I went into the studio and recorded some tracks just on my own, and then the other guys came in and added their little bits judiciously. Um, maybe Thick as a Brick for other reasons, that it's a more adventurous and slightly more complex album of of uh, rather surreal humor and technically more demanding music um you can fast forward maybe to songs from the word and crest of a knave and and um and then of course getting into the more current age thick as a brick two was a uh something i had put off for all those years and finally decided to give it a go in 2012 um, and that was a, you know, quite a, an elaborate piece of writing and, and preparation and recording. Um, so yeah, there are landmark albums for me along the way, but I, I don't really have any particular favour and think that's the one. That's where I absolutely nailed it because, you know, all the little flaws and failings are so self-evident to me, um, <laughs> as as indeed they were by the time I, you know 
you know, live with the album for a few weeks or months, you know, you start to realize that there's some annoying little imperfections that um, aren't necessarily just technical, but perhaps errors of judgment in right. terms of the mix or the performance or some some uh, nuances of the uh, of performance. I mean, yes. usually my own rather than other people. I'm, I'm more critical <laughs> of me than I am of them. Yes. Usually. So, so just last question. What would you say now to you know your or say eighteen year old self? You know, when you sort of worldly advice or. I mean, I, well, I would give myself the same advice that George Martin gave the the twenty. Um, let me get this year correct. Probably the twenty three year old, twenty uh, four year old Ian Anderson. I went to. I was wheeled in to meet George Martin because I, I was facing. I think the time when I was either thick as a brick or Aqualung. I can't remember which album it was. The 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 that that was looming as a as a recording group of recording sessions, and I was taken to, to meet George Martin, who I was seeking advice from, you know, as to production and and hoping that he might give me some words of wisdom and, and maybe even that he would offer his own services to produce yes. a Jethro Tull album. And uh, I went to meet George. He was a very nice chap. And, uh, you know, he said, well, I've listened to, you know, your, some of your stuff you've already done. And uh, he said, if you, if you, you know, if you're looking for my advice, he said, it's very simple. I would just say, carry on as you are. Do Do what you're doing. And which was in part not what I wanted to hear because I didn't feel particularly... Um, capable or confident about my ability to tackle more complex projects. But um, in a way, it was very good advice. It gave it gave me that, that confidence that I'd been lacking, and I went off with a, a more resolved, um, firm determination to, to carry on being the producer of my own work. And... Um, and George gave me that little bit of, uh, of confidence. And uh, over the years, uh, up until sadly he was yes. too ill to come to uh, my son's wedding last year, but um, oh, the year before. Um, but he was because uh, he he died, as you know, and um, he was um, you know a real gentleman, so unlike everything else in the world around at that time, and without whom I think the Beatles never could have done what they did. He was quite truly for a period of time the the fifth beetle and uh, an extraordinarily creative and conservative consolidating force who understood how to balance the the more waywardness of untutored musicians with a with a more scholarly and methodical approach and that's what i think george passed on to me in a way that you know i had to find the way to balance those two things i had to be i had to put my producer's hat on and then take it off and run out in the studio and put my my singer, flute player, musician hat on and get on with that bit of the job. And that um, you know, I had to really focus quite separately on the two roles. Yes, well, I know. So I, I, I would go back and give myself that same bit of George Martin advice. Yes. Would be just, uh, hey, you know. Do what you're doing. Yes. Well, I, I think um, actually it's interesting because I remember Brian Eno saying um, quite a slightly similar, similar thing to David Bowie. It's like, well, don't worry, no one's going to die what we do now. You know, this, like, we're not in the operating table. Mm. So, you know, just experiment and kind of have a good time at the same time. You know, and I suppose it takes that pressure that it's somehow sort of going to... I mean, it could change people's lives to a degree, but it's not like having a major operation, is it? 
No, it isn't. And I and I think that, um, you know, the idea of just relaxing and getting on with it is a great one. But, you know, someone's got to pay the bills. And, and, and that's where you do actually have to exert discipline. And, and, you know, maybe we've all at some time or another, we've we've done that Brian Eno thing of just kind of experimenting in the studio and fooling around and a lot of dead ends. And, and finally, you know, a bit of magic occurs and you capitalize on it. But, I, you know, part of me isn't made that way. I, I you know, I'm I have a session starting at whatever time it is. I mean, these days, usually 10 a.m. through 6 p.m. is when I like to work, when I'm at my best. Um, and my musicians are very happy to work in those time scale as well because they get to go home, you know, home by 7 and they have the evening to spend with their family or go out for dinner or whatever it is they're doing. So um, we, we we work a very normalized hour uh, schedule these days. We, we kind of Sundays off for you know roast beef lunch whatever you do at home um so that it, it it's very orderly and uh, you know at, at quarter to 10 everybody arrives gets set up 10 o'clock sharp we start and six o'clock whether we finished or not everybody goes home and that's um that kind of discipline in a way is a driving force and I rather like that I don't like to be under a little bit of pressure and creativity very often responds to that pressure. And for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm facing a session maybe that's going to start in two hours' time, and it's uh, 7.30 in the morning, and I'm sitting there working on some passages of music that I've got to come up with because when the guys walk in, I've got to have it ready mm. and say, this is, this is what we're, you know, this is this extra bit of music that's not on the demos I sent you. And I've got to have it ready. And so that's a, a pressure, if you like, that it's, it's, it's somehow that really spurs you on and... and especially for me early in the morning, is when I'm at my more creative, natural level. I, I just find it easier to work under pressure early in the morning and make it happen. And um, thankfully, I suppose with the benefit of years of experience and commitment, then it happens m much more often than it fails. So I, I find writing music is pretty easy. Writing lyrics, I do have to kind of be alone and, and relaxed and away from things. I have to, you know, I do need that sort of rather more self-indulgent, creative moment to write lyrics. But these days I tend to, you know, I tend to have my lyrics ready. Yes. Um, and musically, I'm not too far behind, but it's, it's much easier for me to write music uh, under pressure and to, to deliver in a time frame uh, than it is to do that with lyrics. So I, I try and make sure I've got the lyrics all sorted or you know, close to the final edited form that, as I will sing them. Yes. Well, that's, you know, I suppose when I was, when you were talking about that, it did remind me, there's a few people, I suppose, who've really dedicated their life to rock and roll. One was David Bowie and the other one was Lemmy from Motorhead. And I suppose he had a very sort of, I probably, you know, he wrote, you know, he was Motorhead. And I suppose in a way you were slightly the same with Jethro Tull is that you've got the managerial as well as the artistic bent to make things happen and not going to, suffer fools gladly as they say well I, I yeah but then i i think lemmy could never be accused of having a managerial role i mean he understood nothing about business and it seemed i mean i read his autobiography autobiography recently and uh you know largely in his words um as they were dictated to somebody towards the end of his life and i um i can look at it and think well you know this poor chap he went all the way through this all he's got is these very negative views about record companies and managers and fellow musicians and it's all sort of rather dark and negative because he didn't know what the hell was going on around him uh, had no seeming 
interest or ability in, in, in understanding the mechanics, the machinery of, of organization and, and, and is left feeling bitter and, and rather twisted uh, about it all. And, um, I, you know, prior to that, I read Tony Iommi's biography about uh, his, obviously his, not just his days with Black Sabbath, but everything else. And, and there again, you know, Tony who's someone that I, I know a bit, um, you know, he he just was never. It seems it seems like a really unhappy relationship with with people, managers, record companies, all that sort of stuff. And I, I don't have that. I mean, I, the record companies have always been really nice to me. In almost all cases, the people that I've worked with in several record companies over the years, as they've morphed from Chrysalis of old through um, EMI into Warner Brothers today, and uh, and you know, my relationship with BMG as publishers goes back to the the early days when they were the distributors for Chrysalis in uh, in Germany and then became um, uh, in, involved in the publishing. So, I mean, my, my relationship with all these people um, goes back, you know, to 1969. And, and I don't have any of the bad stuff, you know, either with my, <laughs> either with the many musicians that I've worked with, even, even those that where there was absolutely no possibility we were ever going to, you know, live happily ever after and, go to work in the same van but you know Mick Abrahams and I never really hit it off and it was never going to go anywhere musically or personality wise but you know my relationship with Mick to this day god bless him he's in, in not not in great shape but you know I try and make a point of speaking to him every year either he calls me or I call him or some there's some something that goes on you know there's um there's something you know a bond between us and um so, you know, working with Mick occasionally, as I did in the years when he was still able to play, you know, was part of my, my ongoing life. I don't, I don't have any bad stuff about anybody. I mean, my autobiography, if there ever is one, would be exceedingly dull. <laughs> you know, there's no nastiness, there's no bitterness, there's no sex and drugs, really. And even what I do, you probably can't really call rock and roll. So, you know, on on, on all fronts, it, it will be, a, it, will be um, it might be well written, it might even be an entertaining read, but it's not really rock and roll, and it will deeply disappoint those who are used to reading the the biographies and autobiographies of people whose lives are filled with torture and torment and and bad stuff. So, um, you know, sadly, David Bowie and Lemmy both, I'm absolutely confident, would have lived longer and more fruitful lives without the the uh, the amount of cocaine they shoved up their noses and the the degree to which they uh, imbibed other uh, chemicals, including alcohol. So, you know, sadly for most people who die too young, there is a background of self-abuse. And and um, looking back on it, you know, I think David Bowie wasn't a, you know, he's a bright enough guy. Surely he knew what he was doing was going to take his toll. And um, and he did. Yes. I mean, he's basically the same age as me, but, um, you know, has, has had a, a number of years of ill health prior to his death. And... Um, and Lemmy deteriorated gradually to the point where his his wrecked body finally became uh, 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 an inoperable cancer reality. Yes. And um, others managed to sort themselves out and survive. And uh, but they're not they're still not a good advertisement. I think it's not a good advertisement in in my world to say, well, I used to use crack cocaine and I used to use heroin and I used to do this and that and whatever and then and then I got clean and you know and I lived happily ever after. Uh, that seems to suggest that it's okay to do this thing to excess when you're younger and then you quit. But let's remember all the people who didn't get to be older 
who who did these things when they were younger and died young. Amy Winehouse, for example, or you know, Jim Morrison or yeah. Keith Moon, I mean, all died long before their time because they were the they were they were they were the ones who didn't survive. So for every Keith Richard who's still alive today, in spite of his uh, mis misspent youth, adulthood, and middle age, um, you know, he's not a good advertisement really for the, for how things work in the world. He's just he is just exceedingly lucky, as is Eric Clapton, yeah. um, as is Ginger Baker, who's still alive. Um, poor old Jack Bruce d didn't make it because. His years of, of, of abuse got the better of him in the end, and I, I knew Jack mainly in the latter part of his life, and it always just struck me as a terrible shame that he still, you know, was unable to shake some of those uh, dependencies that he had. Yes, I know. And then, we yes, well, last year was a bit of an Anna Cerebris on the rock front, really, wasn't it? So. Um... Well, and as I, I said this to Tony Iommi just a few weeks ago, we were... He said to me, "Oh God, I just got the news this morning that uh, that John Wetton, who was a member of, uh, amongst others, Asia and uh, the band UK, and uh, you know, had uh, been in the sort of fringes of the kind of prog rock world as a bass guitarist and singer, and he um, he, he had died that morning, oh. and uh, and Tony and I sort of, oh, gosh, yes, another one gone, and uh, and um, and we just were remarking on the fact that." It's not so much just the last few months. It's it's going to be 2017 and 2018. It's a snowball gathering momentum on the uh, on the slippery slope of mortality that uh, we will encounter more and more often. People of our generation who are passing away, and it will become more noticeable, not less. And and then it, and then it's our turn. And so, as, as Tony said, well, I might have a year. I might have ten years ahead of me, but I know that I know. You know, the chances are I'm going to have more problems, and uh, um, and that's a very realistic way of looking at it. And that um, you know, you enjoy your life while you can, and you have the uh, try and balance up your professional life with a private life to to cherish and enjoy. You know what what time you have ahead of you. And um, you know, he's he's a pretty relaxed and savvy guy. Uh, Tony Iommi, but I guess there are a whole bunch of others that never made it that far to become that way in life or have suffered um, along the way to the point where they were never really truly going to be healthy and reliable. I mean, Greg Lake I knew a bit in the last 15, 20 years, I guess. Um, and, uh, I, you know, Greg, I've worked with him a couple of times. He's been on my cathedral shows and and... ELP were on tour with us once, and you know, and Greg was all the time I knew him was in bad shape. You know, for from 1996 when I kind of got to know him personally, and um, you know, he was in bad shape from then on, really. And uh, sadly, he kept his uh, his his uh, terminal illness uh, secret from all outside his family and one or two other people in the music world, and and I I didn't get the chance to say goodbye. Um, it was uh, rather sad because last year I remember earlier in the year thinking well I've got some cathedral concerts coming up and I probably won't ask Greg to do them again because I don't want to make him feel like he's obliged somehow to offer his free services mm. or something I, just, I, thought, I thought I'll just I'll just kind of paper the way by a friendly call that, that means he knows I'm thinking of him even if I don't invite him to perform at wherever I was last December. 
and and I and I just never got round to making that call. And of course, that was a another of those occasions in my life when I didn't call somebody, and I should have done. You know, I um, I remember you know exchanging emails with Keith Emerson when he he was suffering from some serious illness that looked at the time like it was colon cancer, but turned out not to be. Uh, and I remember you know having a a few emails with him and and with other people that have gone through some period of illness and um and I but I didn't call Frank Zappa who I actually never knew but I I had a message to call Frank he wants to speak to you before he dies and I just tried to to make the phone call three times I I dialed the number and, and hung up before it answered cuz I didn't know what to say <laughs> and then a few weeks later I got the news that he that he'd gone and and I you know I felt so I despised myself for not having not not for my um, gratification but the fact that the message that I got from intermediaries via his wife I think was was he wanted to talk to me someone he'd never met or spoken to in his life I guess he just wanted to say goodbye to some people including people that he'd never met but. Yes. Rather like I felt about him, I, I always wanted to meet Frank. I was a big fan, although I, 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 my impression was he really, really didn't like Jethro Tull. But you know, it was um, I deeply regret not calling him. I deeply regret not calling Greg Lake. I deeply regret not getting in touch with Keith Emerson when he was in a frame of mind that he obviously was when he killed himself. And, yeah. and so you know, I, it's a reminder I think to all of us that we should pick up the phone to somebody we love or cherish and. You know, don't don't let don't let the years go by because suddenly they will have gone forever. Yes. And mm. on, on that very cheerful <laughs> but but frankly desperately frighteningly realistic note, I must uh, yes disappear. Well, look, Ian, all, all the best for the uh, the the, um, the rehearsal and the tour and the band and the album. And yes, I do love the new album. It does sound all very exciting. So um, yes, the string quartets. Go and buy it. It's going to change your life. Good. Thank you. Nice Thanks to talk to you. Take, Take care. care. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. That was uh, the spring of 2017 when they were rehearsing and were just releasing the album, The String Quartets. Thank you for listening. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram. How modern is that? You can just do at C86 Show. I will be there. Also... All these shows have been podcasts, so you can find them on uh, Spotify, iTunes, um, Podbean, Mixcloud. I think that's the four. Hopefully I didn't repeat any of those. Anyway, look, have a great week. This is going to be another track by the band. This is probably the other one, the other. I have got so many favourite Jethro Tull uh, tracks, but this is a um, one title song from the world. Have a great week.
Sing 